Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good morning. And we are still, as a country, uh, kind of reeling from the aftermath of the Nashville shooting and facing, as a country, uh, really the false ideology of the transgender agenda and what that means in terms of our rights, our liberties, and how we function as a civil society, how we view law, politics, and policy when confronted with the practical application of this false ideology in America and how this is ultimately going to uh, fashion the landscape of how Christians can exercise our rights in civil society. What can a cake baker do in declining a custom piece of art? Uh, What can a web designer do in declining to create a custom website? Uh, How do we confront issues uh, even with freedom of speech uh, for licensed professions. Uh, These are things that our country will have to determine. Do we still value and recognize that the Constitution enumerates and protects freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, uh, the right to contract or decline? Or are we going to venerate the trans ideology as the new religion of the United States that we are forcibly compelled to participate in? So uh, Tucker Carlson addressed this very aptly on uh, his show earlier this week. And I want to play just a segment of this to set up this conversation that we'll be talking about uh, throughout this show and with uh, my guests that will be coming on in the next segment of how we need to protect children's rights, uh, specifically with respect to the trans ideology, but even against the entirety of the LGBTQ agenda. And we need to promote truth. So this is what Tucker Carlson had to say. Identifying as trans, whatever, again, its downsides, does convey status in this country, which is why so many young people now do. Not a lot of 19-year-olds are pretending to be car mechanics or linemen for a regional power company in eastern Ohio, but plenty of college freshmen do pretend to be members of the opposite sex. And why wouldn't they? The people in charge despise working-class whites, but they venerate the trans community. People are just responding to incentives. It's rational in a way. But that does not explain the anger that we heard in that NPR segment. Why are some trans people so angry and why do they seem to be mad specifically at traditional Christians? We can't think of any trans person who's ever been murdered by a pastor. As far as we know, that has never happened. So it's not an actual threat of violence from Christians that's inspiring some trans people to buy AR-15s. No, it's got to be more fundamental than that. And it is. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face that they are sinful and helpless and basically absurd. They're not embarrassed about any of this. They brag about it. That saved a wretch like me goes the most famous Christian hymn ever written in English. 
The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we were born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers they believe God alone possesses. That unwillingness to agree, that failure to acknowledge a trans person's dominion over nature, incites and enrages some in the trans community. People who believe they're God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. So Christianity and transgender orthodoxy are wholly incompatible theologies. They can never be reconciled. They are on a collision course with each other. So Tucker goes on, of course, uh, for another few minutes and is talking about this, but I highlight this clip uh, again to set up the conversation that the leftists are enraged when we as Christians simply speak the self-evident truth of the reality to which we are presented that we are not God. There are certain things out of our control, and if we as Christians are speaking truth and speaking the biblical worldview, then we are speaking truth about reality, and part of that is the empirical evidence of the laws of nature and of nature's God, as our founders would have articulated it. And part of that is the recognition of traditional marriage between one man and one woman. And how we define what one man is and one woman is, is based on empirical biological reality. But the leftists would suggest that if we hold the view of truth and we dare in society anymore to express that view, it's not just my opinion that one man and one woman can create a baby and outside of that, then you can't get any other uh, procreation other than the man's sperm and the woman's egg. That's just biological reality. But that is hate speech now to the leftists. And that is violence to the leftists. That is fomenting rage and bigotry and is somehow trying to erase the transgender person. Well, this has now become such a a political sacred cow to the left that they are trying to destroy, um, in some cases literally, like uh, the Nashville shooter that intentionally went into the school and shot Christian children and teachers uh, because apparently she felt, uh, reports have said, that she was not accepted by her friends and family for the transgender person she wanted to identify with. And then there are other ways that the LGBT agenda and those elites who are driving this uh, are trying to force Christians to buy into and to speak and affirm a false definition of reality. And this is actually pervading not only our education system, our social media, and how uh, Twitter accounts can be suspended. There were a number of people, including uh, my friend Michael Knowles from Daily Wire, who simply tweeted a Bible verse in the wake of the Nashville shooting, and he got suspended. I don't think even as, as of right now, he's back on Twitter. Um, but this is also pervading uh, some of our professions. So for example, um, I tweeted uh, a week or two ago in reference to a photo of Pete and uh, Chastin, or Chastain, not sure how I pronounce his name, uh, Buttigieg, who of course are two males, 
and they claim that they are married, which we know goes against that definition. But they posted this picture with their daughter that obviously they adopted because they cannot together procreate as two males. And I said, quote, this isn't a family. It's two sexual perverts and a child that deserves an actual family, a mom and a dad. Children's rights matter. Kids are not commodities. So I tweeted that. And of course, this was met with outrage from the left. And we're going to be talking more about children's rights and how we define that, how we can protect that. Uh, Coming up with my guest, uh, Katie Faust, who is just an incredible advocate and uh, wrote a really important book on this. Um, But then lo and behold, I get uh, an email from the Colorado Attorney Regulation Council, which of course governs my bar license uh, in the state of Colorado. And um, someone who I don't know, who's just an average concerned citizen, apparently, uh, submitted a bar complaint requesting that I be disciplined professionally for this tweet. So uh, the Colorado Bar Council sent me a copy of the letter that they sent this individual uh, that says, your request for investigation alleges that a tweet Ms. Ellis posted violated the Colorado Rules of Professional Responsibility. And so it goes on to say, you report that Miss Ellis made the following statement on Twitter in reference to this photo. And then they go on to quote my tweet and then says, you, this complainant, allege her statements are dishonest, libelous, homophobic, and designed to be harmful toward the Judge family and the LGBTQ plus members of the community. So this is where we're at, folks. This is where we are at in the United States of America that someone who is clearly following my comments that are First Amendment protected speech, I can have not only opinions on uh, what it means to be a family and the definition of marriage and promote the Christian worldview, but I can also talk about the truth of biological reality and the definitions of marriage and family. And I'm allowed to do this in this country uh, still. However, the leftists want to discipline me as a lawyer and suggest that simply because my bar license is governed by the Attorney Regulation Council in Colorado, that now I should have my rights and privileges as a lawyer taken away from me because I dared to promote a truthful worldview on my personal Twitter handle. This isn't even on behalf of a client. This isn't some aggrieved party that's, you know, saying that, you know, I made a mistake in court or misrepresented something to a judge or, you know, any of those things that generally govern the rules of professional responsibility. I mean, that's what these regulation councils are designed to do. And of course, they have been weaponized. And we've talked about this on this program with Alan Dershowitz and uh, how the leftists are trying uh, to simply, you know, get attorneys who have represented Trump. And of course, you know, I was caught up in all of that. And thankfully, my, my bar license has been secured. Um, but this is now an open weaponization and mechanism for the left to come after conservatives and Christians when our professions are governed by these professional licensing boards. And this happens um, in a wide variety of instances uh, for doctors who promoted the truth about the COVID narrative and promoted other therapeutics instead of the vaccine. Um, I was just talking to my, my good friend Don Huffines uh, and his wife at dinner the other night in Texas where um, they were telling me about a friend of theirs who's a doctor 
that um, simply didn't go along with the COVID narrative provided um, and prescribed ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and actually had his medical license taken away from him because he refused to wear a mask during um, apparently some patient communication. And that that is just absurd in this country. So thankfully, um, the Colorado attorney regulation bar um, sent me this letter that they said um, that the information this person provided does not establish a violation of the rules and they've closed the investigation and aren't taking further action. And I'm, I'm very thankful that they, they saw that wisdom. But interestingly, they editorialized in this letter because they said, um, you know, they went through the analysis and said, um, you know, the office, our office does not endorse those statements, which fine, you know, they, they don't have to endorse anything that I say privately, like any other attorney, nor, nor should they regardless, that's, that's not their uh, role. But they said, you know, our jurisdiction is limited to issues of professional misconduct. Libel is a civil claim. And um, the statements which appear to be made in my individual capacity, not in representation of a client, are an expression of personal opinion. So they got that right. But then they went on to say, finally, while Miss Ellis's statements may be hurtful and offensive and are not condoned by this office, there is not clear and convincing evidence that she intended to cause harm by posting them. Well, you know, my question would be, why, why do they even need to editorialize at all and say, you know, the statements may be hurtful and offensive and are not condoned by this office? I mean, that is that is taking a position and that's suggesting that my comments simply recognizing biological reality are somehow subject to their interpretation that they might be hurtful and offensive and we don't want to condone that at all. And, and this is where our professions and our courts and our, our, the entirety of our vocational um, ability to make a living are our vocations in this country, whether you are a cake baker, you are an attorney, <laughs> you are a doctor, you're a website designer, anything else, um, you could have this foreclosed. I could see an instance in the future that a bar regulation council, thankfully Colorado has taken a great step and they've dismissed this rightly, but they should have said this protected speech, it's opinion, clear, done. I can see an instance where a future administration um, like administration council or regulation council like maybe in California could suspend or discipline a lawyer simply because we dare to promote the Christian worldview. We need to be praying that that never happens in this country. And we need to be making sure that regardless of what happens, we are always willing as Christians to promote the truth and speak the truth of the world that is Christ and who is the person of truth. So we'll be right back with more to talk more with Katie Faust about children's rights and the truth. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. There is a great book called Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. This is by Katie Faust, and I've gotten to know her uh, actually through a couple of mutual friends and also the wonderful world of Twitter. And so uh, she was very kind to send me her book, which I have read. And this is such an important idea and and an important perspective as we look at 
all of the ways that we are as a society prioritizing the desires of adults instead of the needs of children. Uh, so Katie, and you can follow her on Twitter at Advo, A-D-V-O, underscore Katie. And she has the pin tweet that says, children have a right to life, to their mother and father, to sexual innocence, no gender, no sex or gender ideology in school, to intact bodies, not chemically or surgically mutilated. Their rights are being attacked. Start defending the children. So Katie, thanks so much for joining me. And this is a really important conversation that I've uh, wanted to have with you for a while. And um, how can we better understand why we need a global children's rights movement? First of all, great to be with you. I'm a huge fan. I love fearless women. And so it's a joy to be with you and chatting with your audience today. Um, How can we start defending kids? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that children don't exist for us. They're actually independent, vulnerable people that deserve protection from the only group that has the power to do so, and that is the adults. And so honestly, I think that all adults, but specifically those that would consider themselves conservative, need to get very serious about defending children's rights in all of these areas. Most of us have a pretty good handle about what that looks like when it comes to abortion. We very clearly see that children's right to life is being um, violated viciously and um, violently. And we've said that, no, you can't do that to kids. We need to take that same protective mentality into pretty much every other culture war battle that's going on out there. My book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, outlines how we need to do that in the sphere of marriage and family. How children, when it comes to marriage and family, whether you're talking about the definition of marriage or divorce or same-sex parenting or reproductive technologies, that in all of those areas, we just think, you know what, as long as I'm getting what I want, the kids will be fine. That's wrong. The children are harmed when their right to their own mother and father is not protected and defended. But we also need to look at all these other culture war issues, like the transgender debate, not as primarily about, you know, what adults want. But this is a matter of child protection. Children have a right to make it to adulthood with unmedicalized, intact bodies, without having healthy organs surgically and electively removed. Children have a right to innocence. They should not have to deal with pornographic materials foisted upon them by ideological zealots. When they're in elementary school, they have a right to innocence. They should know that their own male or female body are good without being confused by, you know, activist kindergarten teachers talking about the gender unicorn or whatever it is. All of these different culture war issues boil down to, are you going to protect children, their rights, or are you going to elevate adult desire and ideology above their rights so adults can have what they want? And we need to start being very clear. We, especially we conservatives, must protect children. And that is the lens through which I think we should do nearly every culture war battle we're facing today. And Katie Faust, this makes so much sense because when we look at the concept of rights generally, we typically just think of them as the individual and 
uh, and the adult, because we think about our right to free speech or our right to free exercise of religion or freedom of the press and all of these things that are exercised generally by adults and certainly parental rights uh, that are exercised. But we don't necessarily think of um, the rights that children have to all of these things that you just said, and not only the right to life, which uh, Christians definitely advocate for specifically and acknowledge that, but then in other areas to say this isn't just uh, that parents can decide literally anything for their children. There are some decisions that are off the table because those would be characterized, rightly so, as abusive or uh, they are they are things that will ultimately harm a child. And so society will then prohibit that. And that should include things like uh, exposure to um, things that would destroy their sexual innocence or things that would be mutilating their bodies. Yeah. And, um, and so that makes so much sense. And so yeah. when we look at the concept of children's rights, you also have a part in your book that children's rights are actually acknowledged worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I'm going to just, you, you pack so much in there. Um, let me first say that we have absolutely adulterated the concept of rights. And it's, you know, these days, anything an adult really, really, really wants, they will frame as a right, you know, a right to government funded birth control, a right to choose, a right to housing, a right to marry. And so first of all, we need to be very clear about what exactly is a natural right. So we spend quite a bit of time in chapter one on the book talking about how do you just determine what a natural right is? Because what you've got, especially in this sphere, is you have the left talking about children's rights. Right. But it's their right to have their transgender identity hidden from their parents or their right to sexual pleasure or their right to get testosterone from planned parenthood. Those are not children's rights. So, you know, we have to be very careful about how we use the term right. And like in, you know, to paraphrase the Incredibles, when everything is a right, nothing is a right. And so we need to get very serious about what exactly is a right. And so we spend some time talking about the natural rights that children have, especially as it relates to the right to life and the right to their own mother and father. And when you properly identify and define children's rights, what you see is they perfectly reinforce and strengthen parental rights to their own children. These two things are not in conflict. The problem is that we have misused the term children's rights. And then we have people have fallaciously said that, you know, parental rights means I can give my child these chemically castrating um, hormone treatments. And that's false. We need to properly identify children's rights. And then we will see the proper reinforcement of parental rights and also the limits to what parents can do to their children. Um, and so that's that's really important, you know, is that we really understand exactly what we are advocating for and use these words well, because there is power when we get this right. And that makes so much sense. And and so then for the people who are listening, it's probably the next natural question is, okay, you just articulated that that children have the right to their own mother and father. And so what about the instance of, for example, adoption or an instance where um, the, the parents are splitting up and there is a divorce? A lot of times um, the courts now, at least um, generally speaking, are recognizing Um, father's parental rights and whether or not it's necessarily good for the child to go back and forth and, um, you know, have these different uh, sorts of, of schedules and things. They at least are 
are asking um, if a if a competent father is asking for visitation rights, generally speaking, the courts will grant that because they recognize the influence of the father is a good thing. Um, but how do we navigate those those instances? Yeah. So the the way to properly understand this is this is the default understanding of the world that children have a natural right to their own mother and father. And that does three things. Number one, it grants them with statistically, there's exceptions, but statistically, the two adults who are the safest, most connected to, most protective of, and most invested in them. And so we see overwhelmingly over and over again that children who are raised in the home of their married biological parents fare better on nearly every outcome. Number two, those two adults grant something to children that no other adult gives them, and that is their biological identity. It's very hard to answer the question, who am I, when you're a teen kid, if you cannot answer the question, whose am I? And that is exactly why adoption has swung from closed adoption 60 years ago to now 95% of adoptions are open adoptions because social workers have recognized, and so have parents and kids, Kids benefit from as many connections with their first family as possible, even if they can't be raised by them. Um, and third, protecting this fundamental child right grants children the perfect gender balance in the home 100% of the time. And that mothering and fathering maximizes child development and satisfies the child's longing to be loved by a man and woman. So there are times where that ideal is not possible, The pro- such as extreme cases of divorce, or when a child cannot be raised by their birth family and needs to be placed for adoption. The problem is in our marriage and family lexicon, whether it's in policy matters or cultural matters, we have flipped this and we've said moms and dads don't matter. Biology is irrelevant. What matters only and above everything else is adult sexual desire, adult sexual feelings, adult sexual identity. And if adult sexual desire and adult sexual identity is God, then children's rights are the natural, children themselves are the natural sacrifice and the necessary sacrifice on the altar to that God. So if there's a situation of divorce, first of all, we do need to roll back divorce because most of the time, the dads, most of the time, the party that does not want the divorce the most, which is usually dads, women initiate 70% of divorces, and the vast majority of cases of divorce are not situations of abuse or abandonment or addiction there because one of the adults has fallen out of love and refuses to do the hard work. So no-fault divorce usually is unilateral against-my-will divorce of one party. And then the kids have to deal with split homes and split lives forever, which has massive physical, mental, emotional, relational, and academic consequences for kids. Um, but in situations like that, you do need to make sure that kids don't lose contact with their mom or dad, barring the extreme cases where one of the parents are abusive or neglectful. Adoption is the big exception to all of this. And that is because our mantra at Them Before Us is adults need to do hard things for kids. And in many of these different situations, whether it's same-sex parenting, whether it is the typical no-fault divorce situation, whether it's single mothers by choice, whether it is sperm or egg donation or surrogacy, it is the adult saying, kids, you do hard things for me. I want what I want. So you're going to lose something that you need or something you have a natural right to so I can live as I please. It's insisting that kids do hard things for adults. In adoption, it is the adults doing hard things for kids. 
It's the adult saying, I recognize this child has lost something they have a natural right to. So we, the adults, we, the mom and dad, are going to voluntarily take on um, the burden of going through screening, vetting, background checks, home studies, being scrutinized so that we can, in essence, graft this child into our life because they need a home. So that's the big overall message is the default is children have a right to their own mother and father. They want them. They need them. They suffer without them. And in situations where they cannot have them, adults in their lives need to do hard things to seek to mend their wound. And and uh, you, you've answered this some, but I want to dive uh, into this a little bit more deeply when, you know, we, we talk about adoption being the big exception to that and the mom and the dad doing the hard work of, uh, of then uh, taking a child who doesn't have a mom and a dad and uh, grafting them into their family. But in the instance of um, a surrogacy or um, a basically a, a commoditizing children um, in the sense that a, a homosexual couple, for example, can't, of course, naturally have children. I don't care what the left says, they can't. And yet they want to live sexually the way that mm-hmm. they prefer. And so then they use adoption as a way to build a, a, a semblance of a family without doing the hard work of saying, um, I'm going to give up that sexual lifestyle so that I can have a complete family for a child. But the left would say, well, love is love. And as long as you have two loving parents, even if that's two men or two women, that's really all that the child needs. And isn't it better that a child grows up with two parents that love them instead of no parents at all? Yeah, there's a lot there. So let's just start by doing a quick contrast between third-party reproduction and adoption. Because a lot of people are like, well, it's just two different ways to build your family. Maybe you're infertile. Maybe you're a same-sex couple. Well, you can adopt or you could use a sperm donor or an egg donor or a surrogate. But from a children's rights perspective, these two things are not the same. They're actually polar opposites. So let me give you a few reasons why. So third-party reproduction is using a third party to create a child, right? Somebody else's sperm, somebody else's egg, somebody else's womb. So here's the difference, right? And I'm going to contrast by discussing adoption and big fertility, because big fertility is an industry. They are not a benevolent nonprofit that are there to give needy children to parents who qualify to adopt them. Big fertility is a business. Their job is to create on-demand designer babies for whoever can pay for them. So in adoption, the big difference is that the child is the client. I used to be the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. And my director would always say, we are not here to give every adult who wants one a baby. We are here to find loving parents for every baby that does not have them. In Mm. adoption... If you're doing adoption right, every child that needs a home will find one, but not every adult who wants a child is going to get one, right? You need to actually prove yourself that you don't have a criminal record, that you aren't going to abuse the child, that you're fit parents for this child before you have a baby placed with you. In big fertility, the adult is the client. The goal is to get an adult a baby no matter the cost, whether it's to their pocketbook or the cost to the child. And so what we see is massive amounts of frozen embryos, about 1 million in this country that have been functionally abandoned. We see the reckless disregard for the child's right to life as they thaw and discard and donate to research all those surplus embryos. But even the 
97% of babies that are made in the laboratory that do survive, many of them are going to be intentionally separated from their mother or father because it doesn't just wants it that way, right? Wow. Maybe and we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to take a break right here and be right back with uh, Katie Faust and her wonderful book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. We'll be right back. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And I'm talking with Katie Faust, who is the author of this really excellent book that you have to read. It is called Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And before the break, uh, Katie, you were describing how in the context of big fertility and the whole reproductive uh, rights movement that uh, was the outflow of the sexual revolution and decoupling uh, the the province of of uh, procreation within the context of the nuclear family, how that has become uh, really the catalyst to just commoditizing children and saying that adults' desires and their sexual proclivities uh, can all be uh, attained, and then they can still get a child through some of these other. Um, big pharma and big fertility solutions that are just commoditizing children. And when you're talking about all of these uh, fertilized embryos that are frozen and essentially abandoned um, in America, I'm reminded of um, a story about Paris Hilton, who, you know, who's of course a, a celebrity and all that. And she was talking about her own um, her own fertility journey, and I, I put that in air quotes, and how she has 20 male frozen embryos, and she's continuing to create embryos, apparently, because she wants a girl, and so she wants gender selection. So even though she is in a heterosexual marriage, she's using um, in vitro, and she's using a big fertility to gender select a child and really is is abandoning at least 20 children and this is so unethical and so outrageous yet she's splashing that all over the news as if you know look at me i'm being such a great mother yeah that's exactly right a lot of the stuff that gets the headlines is the same sex couple who is creating the intentionally motherless child through surrogacy but the reality is the rights of children their right to life their right to their mother and father is being widely violated by heterosexual couples as well. When I talk about these kinds of things in a Christian context, even, I sometimes have people stand up and walk out of my lectures and my speeches, um, because this is something that, honestly, we have all adopted somewhat of a mindset that the kids exist for me, rather than us existing for the children. And I understand that there's a lot of pain in infertility, and I have good friends who experience same-sex attraction who would be incredible mothers or fathers, but no adult should or can have the right to insist that kids sacrifice their right to life or their right to their mother and father so any of us can have what we want. It is adults who are supposed to sacrifice for children and not the other way around. Yeah. And and this, you know, again, just makes so much sense if you put it in that context. But I'm not surprised that people would get up and, and leave that lecture because when you're confronted with selfishness and confronted with this idea that, oh, I'm not being, I'm not just being loving and, you know, look at, look at me who is um, doing this wonderful philanthropic thing. And it's actually the truth of the matter is that it's, that it's selfish and it's commoditizing children and it's, um, it's abusing their, uh, the children's 
first rights and, and their right to um, a mother and a father, then of course that makes people um, very uncomfortable. It's the same reason that people don't go to church or they walk out of pastor's sermons because they don't want to be confronted with their sin. And, um, you know, I posted it and you and I actually talked about this, um, that I, I posted a response. Um, it's been a couple weeks ago now about um, Pete Buttigieg and his so-called um, husband, of course, you know, we as Christians know that that's not true and that um, a, a marriage is only between one man and one woman. But, um, you know, he lives with a man and they have adopted um, two kids and they they had this um, this photo online. And and I responded, and I said, this isn't a family. You know, this is two sexual perverts who then think that they uh, are are generating this family, but really it is uh, taking away the rights to children. And I had so many responses of people saying, oh, well, you know, love is love. And at least these kids are in a loving home. Um, but the, and, and you've responded to those kinds of objections, Katie, but um, another one that was interesting and kind of prolific throughout the responses was um, this this objection saying, well, you know, my mother or father died when I was young. So are you saying that um, I now had my rights foreclosed because I didn't have um, a mother and a father growing up um, because of tragedy. And so how can you possibly respond to that? What is your response to that type of context? Well, it's amazing to me because mother loss and father loss has been a part of humanity since the beginning of existence. And usually, I mean, we used to have large scale father loss, you know, generations after war. And prior to modern medicine, we would have mothers lost through childbirth. Thankfully, tragic mother and father loss is at an all-time low because we now have better health care, modern warfare, um, all of this. But what we used to recognize that mother loss and that father loss as a tragedy universally. And the kid who responded or the adult who responded that he lost his father as a kid, my guess is everybody surrounded him when his father died and mourned with him because they recognize that he had lost something irreplaceable. And that is the proper response for mother and father loss, is mourning. But now what we have done culturally, technologically, and legally through all of these different changes, you know, culturally through the love is love mantra, um, technologically through these reproductive technologies where you can intentionally cut out a child's mother or father, and legally through the redefinition of marriage, is in essence we've said mother and father loss is no longer... It is good. It is a civil right. This is actually something that we need to demand in the name of equality. Children have to lose their mother or father so we can advance this adult narrative of equality, LGBT equality. And so what we're taking is we're taking childhood pain, what we used to acknowledge widely as childhood pain, mother and father loss, and we are endorsing, incentivizing, and enshrining it into law. The people who lost their mother or father should be the very first to say, how dare you intentionally reproduce that in the life of the child because it devastated me. Mm, yeah, that is so true. And and unfortunately, harm happens and tragedy happens, but we don't want to intentionally perpetuate that. I mean, it's the difference, of course, when the, uh, the pro-choice movement will attack the uh, the right to life and the people who are uh, pro-life and say, well, um, 
then would you criminalize miscarriage? Because if you're suggesting that um, a mother losing a child or uh, having an abortion should be illegal and should be punishable, then what about the mothers who have uh, miscarriages? But of course, our response to that obviously is that those two situations are so fundamentally different because one is a tragedy and one is a, a total loss and not intentional, where of course, abortion that the leftists want state-funded and facilitated abortion on demand for for just convenience and for any a scenario that the mother just prefers and it's an intentional infliction of death upon the child it's not a it, it is a tragedy overall in in the truth perspective but it is instead of the mother accidentally and against her will losing a child and losing a pregnancy it's an intentional uh, murder of a child. And so, of course, those two situations are very different. Mm-hmm. And so in the last um, about eight minutes or so, I have with you um, Katie Faust. And again, the book is Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. Let's talk about that movement and what the solution is, because um, I've talked some about uh, previously and in you know other contexts about um, the the Convention on Rights of the Child, and of course the United States has not signed on to that, and there uh, there are re- very good reasons for that. Because when you talked, Katie, about how parents and natural biological parents or adoptive um, parents, mother and father, naturally are the ones who care the most and have the best interests of the child at heart. Of course, we don't co-parent with the government. And if we take this perspective that the government can choose uh, to override parents' decision-making for the best interests of their child, which is essentially what these conventions on rights of the child do in um, instances like we've seen in the UK, where uh, life-saving measures were not given to children overriding the parents' clear intent that they want to do everything they can for their child medically. And because the state can choose to decline that over the parents' will, even if they can pay for it, then of course we see that disparity. So so we do have to be very careful when we are talking about children's rights and what that means. And even if a convention or a bill may say, oh, this is children's rights, we have to look at what it actually says and make sure that it is actually protecting uh, both the children's rights and also parental rights in their respective correct definitions. And so what is um, this this movement that you are advocating for in terms of them before us? Yeah, you're exactly right that, again, we have to properly define rights. And when we do that well, so the problem with the UNCRC is it really does wander into the territory of state provision um, for a lot of these different rights that they identify for kids. When the reality is like kids do need housing and they do need to be taken care of and they do need education. And that is the purview of the parents. Right. And so in that sense, the UNCRC did not strike that correct. It's not a balance. It's they did not properly understand the role of parents in providing for their children. So First of all, you know, what do we mean when we're talking about a children's rights movement? For us personally, what that means is we look at every, especially marriage and family situation, and we begin with what about the child? We don't begin with what the adults want or their longing or their attractions or their identity or their losses or their their feelings of suffering or their desires or whatever it is. We begin with what about the child? The child comes from a man and woman. The child statistically, man and woman. 
Now that that's, we understand the developmental benefits and the identity benefits that go along with being raised by that man and woman. Since we understand that now, how do we go into this conversation about whether or not insurance companies should be forced to fund IVF coverage for people who call themselves socially infertile? That would be people who are in a non-procreative relationship. Since children have a natural right to their mother and father, how do we approach divorce reform so that we can make sure that whenever possible, the onus is on the adults to do hard work in their, to mend their marriage versus forcing kids to do the hard work of living in split homes? It means that we begin with what about the child when we ask about whether or not LGBTQ people have a right to adopt. And the answer is, no, you don't have a right to adopt. Heterosexual couples don't have a right to adopt. Children who have lost their parents have a right to be adopted. The child is the client. What about the child? They need a mother and father whenever possible. So the global movement is to recenter all of these conversations on the rights and well-being of the child. And we are going to do that globally because the same forces that are seeking to undermine children's rights, whether it is the global push to redefine marriage, whether it is the greedy, big fertility industry, um, whether it is all of the laws that are seeking to undermine parenthood everywhere, the definition of parenthood, ultimately, all of these children need to be defended. And because children are the same everywhere across the globe, they all come from a man and woman. They all long to be known and loved by that man and woman. All of them thrive most when they are raised by that man and woman. We can take these child-centric solutions into every conversation in every county, in every country, and we actually can start to revive good policy and good personal decisions. And and you have a portion in your book that talks about how this movement will change your perspective and the lens with uh, through which you view the world will shift when you start to view family matters through the filter of children's rights. Effective children's rights advocates rightly sympathize with adults struggling with matters of family and parenthood, but ultimately concern themselves with what is best for the children. And this is a mirror of the biblical truth that the family is an institution that God ordained. And when he, uh, when the Bible talks about and when God talks about in Genesis for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife. The two will become one flesh and then they will be able to uh, to procreate and have the nuclear family. And so the definition of marriage has to change the understanding of a lot of these ways that the world does view choice and does view uh, adults' rights as paramount without even thinking about the children. So how can people get more involved in this movement and what steps can we take beyond redefining things biblically and correctly um, to truly impact the culture uh, for the rights of children? Well, first, I'd say that you need to become an expert. I mean, I think a lot of people um, were uncomfortable with what was going on with the marriage debate, but a lot of people didn't really know enough to speak up and and persuasively push back. I mean, and that's because the other side obviously employs a lot of dirty tricks and emotional manipulation to make their case. And a lot of us were just too nice for too long without understanding that really the definition of marriage is a matter of justice for children. I think that's true when it comes to things like surrogacy. A lot of Christians are like, oh, wait, what is that again? Or actually, that's a good thing. We're supposed to be generous to other people. And, you know, I can, this is, God's calling me to do this. No, God isn't. God is not. God is never calling you to participate in forcing a child to sacrifice and lose their natural rights for the sake of adults. 
So we have to start to understand and become experts on all of these different issues because nobody else is going to defend kids, right? Like the entertainment industry is in the tank. Our institutions have been captured. Our politicians are feckless cowards. It's only ordinary people like you and me who are going to be able to defend kids. And once you do start to understand the critical nature of the importance of children's rights and start to apply that to every situation and conversation, um, you will start to change hearts. And hopefully we are going to start to change laws because personally, I'm being on the defense. I am too. We have to go on the offensive. We are out of time. Katie Faust, really appreciate it. Go to thembeforeus.com. Get this book, Them Before Us by Katie Faust, and uh, continue to advocate for the truth in all of these issues.